Do not come near. Put off your shoes from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. From the book of the Exodus, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The year is 1988. The global Orthodox Church has just chosen and decided to recognize Russian iconographer Andrei Rublev as a saint nearly five centuries since his life and death. Rublev had long been admired by both the East and the West as the golden standard of iconography. So why now, these many years later, had the church chosen to recognize him as one of her holy ones? We know very little of Rublev's life. He was a monk, not much we can be sure of. We believe he trained under Theophanes the Greek, the great Byzantine master of iconography who immigrated to Rublev's native Russia. We know of the time and place he lived, a century of violence, of constant invasion and war. Indeed, many of Rublev's first commissions came as a result of this violence. See, the churches that were burnt down in the raids by the invading armies were eventually rebuilt, and Rublev and his companions and those like him were invited to yet again fill these spaces with images of the saints and of angels of Our Lady Mary the Theotokos and of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But of course, Rublev's work was not immune to invaders' fires, and indeed many scholars believe that we have lost more of Rublev's art than has been preserved. Unlike other saints that the church often chooses to canonize or recognize, there are no miracles attributed to Andrei Rublev. And we have none of his letters, no tomes detailing his approach to his work or his own spiritual pilgrimage. If he preached sermons, it is safe to assume that they are lost to time. What we have are, are some snippets of, of where he worked and with whom, and of course the work itself. And other than that, Saint Andre Rublev remains an enigma to us, his life shrouded in a cloud of mystery, which I think is particularly fitting because it is mystery that pervades so much of Rublev's great work. You can study, and, and you should, the craft that Rublev employed, the colors that he used, the symbolism that he employed, but that will only lead you to the precipice. Going further will require more. It will require 
all of you as mystery does. A mystery that is similar to the mystery that drew Moses up the mountain. One of the predicaments of our age is living in a time where the word mystery is incredibly not awe-inspiring. I don't know where you first encountered the word. I believe for me, it was in the library, a picture of a man smoking a pipe, looking through his magnifying glass for signs. There the word was right beneath him on a sticker. I believe it was green and books that lined the shelves. Ah, the detached detective, the ideal modern man, able to decipher and decode every troubling dilemma, remaining calm and cool in the process, a collected agent merely collecting clues without becoming emotionally compromised, without getting relationally entangled. Perhaps this is very similar to Nicodemus who comes to Jesus by night, looking not necessarily for an encounter, but for some answers. For the detached detective, the case is what is most important, the perpetrator, the victim, and the clues that will connect the two, and becoming intertwined with the case would hinder his ability to solve it. So he must stay at a distance. He must back away from the mystery in order to rid himself and the world of it. Mysteries exist for detectives to solve is the intrinsic lesson I learned growing up, or perhaps for scientists to unravel. Now, let me say, I have nothing against uh, uh, a detective or an officer of the law keeping herself separate from a case in order to uh, impartially administer justice, nor do I have, of course, anything against us using the highest uh, uh, faculties of intellect that we have in order to, to plumb the depths and the riches of the world around us. No, indeed, is one of our, one of our great uh, inheritances as, as, as people formed in the Judeo-Christian thought that we can utilize the highest, uh, highest abilities of our reason, the furthest reaches of our intellect, to attempt to understand this almighty God who created the world and therefore a world and a cosmos and a universe that ought to have cohesion. No, that is not the problem. The problem is that we have relegated mystery to a boring cul-de-sac in our lives. We have placed it outside the realm of things that actually matter. It means for us simply puzzles whose pieces we have yet to fully assemble. But it was, it was mystery that drew Moses up the mountain and he was searching for an answer. What was this fire that did not consume? That's all he wanted to know. But of course what he encountered there, he soon recognized was something far too great for him, beyond his ability to analyze or comprehend something that could not be categorized or codified. This is what we would call a terrible mystery. Theologian Rudolf 
Otto knew that the Latin sounded better when he employed it. Mysterium tremendum. Perhaps you felt it yourself as you've gazed into the furthest reaches of the cosmos or examined the hidden recesses of your own heart. There are things in this world that stretch out beyond our ability to grasp with our intellect. And yet the voice of God beckons Moses to enter in, to come dangerously close and to take off his shoes. I guess I assumed while I was growing up that this was just merely a sign of respect, but perhaps God, what God wanted was for Moses to have the chance to plant his feet on holy ground, to know how sacred sand felt. Not by analyzing its aura or by examining its properties, but by feeling its grains trickle down between his toes. See, this God that Moses encountered is a God who wants to break down every boundary, wants to wash away every wall, wants to strip us of any sandals that we would use to shield ourselves from him. But of course, we may also recognize this as a, as a moment in which Moses is ushered in to hospitality. Have you ever been to a house where people ask you to remove your shoes before you enter in? Maybe that's even some of your own houses. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful sign showing that this isn't a place we want you to leave anytime soon. <laughs> in fact, we want you to treat this like your house. I don't know if any of you sit around, you know, with your strapped up boots or your tied shoes, but no, of course, when we come home, we take off our shoes. And so hospitality ushers us into someone else's home as if it is our own. And so Moses encounters this hospitable God, this God who is relational to the core, and soon Moses realized that he's not the first person who has been invited in. No, 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 this is the God who wrestled Jacob. This is the God who provided the sacrifice in Isaac's place. This is the God whom Abraham called friend. Abraham uh, is, is very close to the work of Andrei Rublev. In fact, Rublev's most famous work, I, I believe it's up there. I, I, also, I also have uh, a version of it myself. It's often uh, given the wrong title. This is actually titled, The Hospitality of Abraham. And it finds its origins in the 18th chapter of Genesis, a chapter which itself reads of mystery. Listen to what it says, the Lord, appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre. Okay, so the Lord appeared to Abraham. The next verse says, Abraham looked up and saw three men standing by. There's no explanation. The Lord appeared to Abraham. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing by. And it was in this story that Abraham received the fullness of the promise, namely that, that Sarah would indeed be the one to bear the child of the covenant, Isaac, the son of laughter. 
Abraham had made a table and served these guests, and he finds himself met with this gift. And it was in this story that Rublev chose to situate his depiction of the Trinity to get at the fundamental foundation of this difficult doctrine, which is simply this, relationality, connection, a shared life, the beautiful goodness of a God who is now and always has been aimed at other persons. Not a detached, distant deity that needed human beings. Not a lonely first cause or unmoved mover. No, no, no. A father and an ever-begotten son and a Holy Spirit engaged in a dance before the beginning of time itself. As you look at the work, the longer that you sit with it, eventually I think it will become clear to you that Rublev has left a seat at the table open to us. As you move closer to this great work, it extends hospitality to you. You could study the Trinity, and you should, and some helpful people here who would be able to be able to give you some explanations that that would be better than you know really bad analogies that are actually just heresies. Heresies are actually really helpful when studying the Trinity, though, because the creeds mainly shield us from saying the wrong thing. But but what you recognize is that this relational core, this extension of God's life is what matters the most. Hospitality of a God who invites us in to his abode which is clothed in holiness. See, Abraham recognized that, that actually his hospitality was preceded by the hospitality of God, this, this creator of the universe who's willing to show up at a, his doorstep. And that is how it always happens, is it not? As soon as we make room for God, we recognize that God's grace has gone out ahead of us and it gives life to our own manifestations of grace, however manifold or minuscule. And we are invited then to join in the dance, to make room for this wondrous mystery in our lives and facts will only take you so far. Only those who love will ever hold this mystery close. You know what I mean, don't you? I mean, you can know everything about the fact of your friend, and yet as the years go on, you realize that there's so much about your friend that you just don't know and you just want to keep learning. This is true of husbands and wives, it's true of children. I've, I've been with my son Ethan most every day of his life and yet 
He's still unfolding before me. A doctor or scientist could use the latest tools to tell me everything about, about our daughter Lucy's current weight and height and so on and so forth within the womb, but I long to know her, to know her, not the fact sheet about her. I know more about that than she does currently, but there is more to her than I can ever hope to explore. This mystery invites us to break down and compromise our defenses, to poke holes in our buffered selves, and unlike Nicodemus, to risk exposure. There's a cup at the center of this work. Do you see it? Do you see the cup at the center? Take notice if you can, how it expands its shape throughout the bodies of of the persons of the Trinity. Do you see that? The way the cup expands itself by the way they're turned towards one another. It's beautiful. We know that this is Christ's cup, the cup of his passion. This is God's life poured out for us. This is the suffering that it, the Spirit invites us to share in, that we might also share in its glory. This is a passion and a death that animates the entire life of the Trinity. This cup is Christ's suffering and crucifixion. But do you notice something? Look at the serenity of this scene. It is absolutely stunning. Rublev's work has always been admired for the peacefulness which it portrays in a seemingly effortless manner. Which doesn't make any sense. How could a person who lived with his, the constant threat of his life's work being turned to ash, someone whose life was always surrounded by war and starvation and suffering and death, paint something like that. <laughs> Maybe this was the only evidence of a miracle the Orthodox Church needed three decades ago when it decided to name Andrei Rublev as one of her holy ones. 1988, a year when the Cold War was beginning to thaw and stories were beginning to leak out. What had not been known for so long was, was coming to light. The details of the great persecution of the church within that land. And yet what greeted outside observers when the wall fail, fell was truly miraculous. One author puts it this way, when the Iron Curtain came down, what the world saw was a church that still stood. The gates of hell had not prevailed against her. Amen? See, what Rublev knew 
And what every martyr and saint that came before and has followed after him has known is that suffering is not antithetical to the gospel. These, these men and women, these, these courageous souls, they recognized that as they were surrounded by suffering, they were indeed standing on holy ground. That their suffering was the very soil out of which the life of God sprang forth. And this is, this is a mystery to us. We don't understand it. We can't comprehend it. We can't get the facts right. But it's a mystery that invites us in. It's a mystery that welcomes us to share in the suffering of Christ, knowing that it will not be too much for us, and that we will also be met with his glory. We are invited, each of us, to join in the dance. And we never hear, because of Christ's great work on the cross and the power of the Spirit working in us, we never hear what Moses did, come no closer. No, the Spirit whispers, join in the dance. The Son offers his very life to us. And God pulls us further up and further in to himself. As we explore the riches of his grace, as we plumb the, the depths of his mercy, as we taste of eternal life itself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.